Hey everybody and welcome to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty but the books are not. I'm Trevor Clifford, this is Mark Gagne. How you feeling, Mark? I feel like Jackie Chan scoping out some shit to jump over in the coolest way possible. How are you feeling? <laughs> uh, I feel like someone who just woke up mad early, because that's exactly what I did. Um, <laughs> but going back to Jackie Chan, I was actually, uh, uh, some friends of mine, were we were talking about Police Story recently. Have Dude, you seen Police Story? That's That's what I'm... That's what I wanted to talk to you about. Dude, I, I, Police I Story. On Blu-ray. It's we, amazing. We were talking about this movie and we were just sharing clips back and forth. And it was like, no one puts this much effort into movies anymore. Bar none. Like, if you watch, like, all the different scenes in Police Story, it's like, you know, it's so elaborate, but also so grounded and real. Like, it's just real people doing real things. Yeah, they shot it for $2 million, <clears throat> too, which is absurd. Like, yeah. like just people yeah more people need to see this movie i don't know my <laughs> jaw inspiring. just dropped like right right from the beginning they're like they just set up this like shanty town this huge shanty town that's like the you know they're having a shootout in it and they just drive cars through it like the whole right. thing yeah it's it's insane it's insane the mall the shopping mall scene where he's like yeah jumping all around and everything it's just so amazing they had like 700 <laughs> pounds of of uh fake glass some shit. <laughs> nice um so yeah welcome everybody to to shitty book reports like i said in the intro but also uh this is a podcast where me and mark read a book each week sometimes we don't read a book every week sometimes we have to bring a book out of the archives that we've read uh for for a few from a few years ago but mark has one book that i don't know what he's talking about this week uh, i have one book that he doesn't know what i'm talking about and uh, we also play some games in between and this week I have invented a new game, but I can't really claim to say that I invented it. I went online and I looked at uh, looked up a few literary based games that you can play for with huge nerds like us at parties. So, um, <laughs> so uh, I can't. I think my there was a list of um, of literary party games that I think I found on a website called Electric Lit. And um, this was one of them. It was hard to suss out everything because a lot of them depended on uh, would be that if our audience could see us, but this isn't a video podcast yet. Um, so this uh, game today I am going to call Elevator Pitch. And basically what I've asked Mark to do is I've asked him to bring a book, uh, a list of books along that is just five books long. It could be books that have already been on the podcast or ones that he intends to cover in the future. Uh, but basically just books that he would recommend to someone. Isn't that what I said? What you that you would yeah. recommend. So yeah. I also I also have a list of, um, of five books that I would recommend to somebody. And um, we're going to see how this works out. I guess we'll alternate back and forth. I hope this works. I don't know if I'm supposed to be, you know, the Pat Sajak host or if I can also participate. But I think it'll think it'll work out fine. Okay. Um, so basically, Mark, this is Elevator Pitch. You have five books that you would recommend to someone. And I am going to start the clock, basically. And you're going to have one minute to pitch each book. So this is like if you were if you were stuck in an elevator meeting someone for the first time, uh, small talk, nothing really to talk about. You have one minute to sell each book. So um, 
I, it's gonna go at a pretty rapid pace. I'm going to allow you. I'm gonna allow you to say just the title of the book before I start the countdown clock. So, with your first book, just say only the title, and then I'm gonna start the countdown clock. And you have that long, one minute to um, to pitch the book. Okay. 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 So say the title, and then after that, you're gonna have sixty seconds. All right. Uh, first one up here: The Return of the Native by Thomas Hardy. Okay, elevator pitch for Return of the Native, go. Okay, uh, this one, it's a really good Hardy novel. It's um, got a really cool main character, Eustacia Vi, uh, super like independent kind of character, uh, heroine. Uh, <laughs> the music's getting to me. Um, That's what it's for. It, it, it's got a couple of other like really characters that stuck with me like uh this guy called like the the Rettleman. he kind of like it, it's just like this country setting with Th with thomas hardy or whatever but he like sells i guess it was a real job back in the day he like sells red dye for like clothing and stuff and stuff so he, mm -hmm. the guy was like the guy's like uh he's like got the shit on him all the time so he's like a red person but he's like involved in this kind of like love story thing it, it i don't know it, it's really interesting um the setting, characters, the story takes a lot of crazy turns. It's really dramatic. That's it. That's <laughs> it. One minute. Thank you very much for describing that Thomas Hardy book to uh, us. <laughs> I can't believe that guy was in. I can't believe that guy was in Black Hawk Down. <laughs> As we discussed in the podcast before, Tom Hardy, not the Tom Hardy Venom of today, a different yeah. Tom Hardy. <laughs> uh, so how how was elevator pitch? That was our first elevator pitch. The the music scares you. I know. Well, also you kind of don't. I think I feel like I have an added benefit of I'm watching the thing like countdown in our little uh, in our little uh, recording platform here. So I don't know if I have the same uh, disadvantage as you do. Maybe you should run. <laughs> maybe you should run your own clock over there on your phone or something like that. Yeah, I'll but, take a look uh, at the time. But. We'll figure it out. So I guess I'm going to do my one next. I'll be as strict as possible with my own time. So basically, I'm just <laughs> going to say the, I'm just going to say the title and then I'm going to play the music. So uh, I am doing a book called In the Heart of the Sea. OK, so In the Heart of the Sea is a book by a guy named Nathaniel Philbrick. It was made into a terrible flop of a movie by Ron Howard. Don't watch the movie. I'm pretty sure the movie <laughs> is like really dumb and sexist and has nothing to do with like the actual good part of the book. Um, In the Heart of the Sea is a nonfiction book. Again, I don't read too much nonfiction, but uh, it's a nonfiction book. Oh my God, this is so hard and terrifying. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a nonfiction book about the whaling industry in Nantucket. So uh, back in Nantucket was like the main like port for when people used to leave. It's basically like a, a true life Moby Dick. So Moby Dick was inspired by this ship, the Essex that got lost at sea and, uh, and Melville was very inspired by it and in the heart of the sea is the true story of the of the Essex and the families back home that were waiting to hear from the whalers in Nantucket. Great fucking book. That's it. <laughs> so see it was stressful, right? It's super stressful. As soon as I was like I, I had only said a few things and it was halfway over and I was like, oh my god. <laughs> um, I'm pumped though, I'm ready for my next one. 
Okay, so uh, rapid fire, your next one. Say the title. All right, The Worm Ouroboros. All right, go. This is a, a fantasy novel by E.R. Edison. Uh, it's like a fantasy epic, like uh, Lord of the Rings, you know, comparable around the, around the same time. Uh, take a look at the cover and it will, you know, inspire you to want to read it if you like this sort of thing. It's got some awesome um, visuals in the front with like uh, dragons and knights and stuff and this cool like 70s style cartoons. Um, anyways, as far as the book itself, it's crazy. It's kind of like uh, if you ever read like the Epic of Gilgamesh, you know how like the characters are powerful beyond belief. It's almost like Dragon Ball Z type shit. It's, it's really, really cool. <laughs> um, uh, and it's got a lot of drawings like in the in the the beginning of chapters and stuff. And um, I don't know, it's it's really like a lush kind of fantasy novel similar to yeah, similar to Lord of the Rings. Uh, <laughs> super majestic in scope and stuff. And it's it's kind of like got a Game of Thrones sort of vibe to it as well. Okay, that's like it. Minute. Ooh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Boom. I think maybe maybe what I need to add is a big buzzer sound that like ends everything. But yeah, that yeah. was good, dude. That sounds good. What is it called again? The Worm Ouroboros. The Worm Ouroboros. That's so for people who don't know, Ouroboros is, also... is like a snake eating its tail. So it's right. like a full circle. And also a song by the very good band Gojira. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah, that sounds cool. The worm or so the worm is eating its own tail. Is there a lot of a, uh, well, cyclical it's actually stuff a big, in there? Yeah, it's a big dragon on the cover. Right. The cover yeah. is awesome. I'll, I'll post it on Twitter. Nice. That's about it. <laughs> cool. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, okay, so I'm gonna dive right into my next one. Uh, mine is a book that I don't think either of us have covered, but we've mentioned it on the podcast before: Norwegian Wood. Okay, so Norwegian Wood is obviously uh, inspired by the name of the Beatles song. It is by a, Jap a novel by a Japanese novelist, Haruki Murakami. Um, it's one of the more depressing books that I think I've ever read, ever. So if you're in a dark place, I don't know. It, it depends if you're the type of person who who misery loves company. And you, if you're in a dark place, you want to read something like Norwegian Wood because you can just you know, be at peace with the fact that the world is really fucked up just like you are at the moment. Or if you're, you know, just able, starting, think you're in a period of your life where you're able to handle a really depressing love story about two teenagers uh, kind of like falling in love, but one has to visit a depression clinic as she goes through a lot of like really intense times. It's not like any other Murakami novel. There is almost no magical realism in the entire book, uh, which I think makes it a special entry in his bibliography. There you go. One minute. <clears throat> so, Norwegian Wood. You've read it. Second. Yeah, yeah. Second time around, you kind of understand how long a minute is. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Yeah, it's a little bit, uh, a little bit easier. Um, right? You're ready for your next one? Yeah. All right. Uh, I Capture the Castle. I Capture the Castle. Okay, go. So this is a book by Dodie Smith. Uh, I think she was she also wrote um, 101 Dalmatians or like the basis for the, the story for that. Um, so it's about like a teenage girl and her family who live in this cat, this rundown castle. Her like father was this 
author who who wrote like it's some one influential work and then kind of like turned into like a hermit or he could he like couldn't you know find his voice again but she's like a writer in her own right and she kind of like uh it's written from her perspective and she's like kind of trying to figure out how to journal and stuff and there's like this couple love stories going on and stuff with her uh competitions with her sister and stuff it's it's, re it's a really good story well written it's uh super descriptive and this really cool setting with this like rundown castle um i think it was a movie with like i don't know who was in it me <laughs> <laughs> and then we both get out of the elevator <laughs> i don't know who was in this movie read, read, but, this uh... read it please 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 read this book um awesome yeah that sounds cool Okay, so my next one, one, we're we're both stuck in the elevator, and I have to convince you. I guess this this is supposedly a hard task, but I don't think it will be. Uh, the Hobbit. <laughs> okay, so uh, I don't know who you are, random person in the elevator, but I guess you don't know what The Hobbit is by uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, I guess write that down if you don't know what this book is, because you're been living under a rock and you're absolutely insane. Um, the Hobbit is a fantasy novel uh, unlike any other. It's connected to those movies that you've heard about called The Lord of the Rings. Um, obviously, don't watch all three Hobbit movies unless you want to get more, even more depressed than you would reading Norwegian Wood. Um, the Hobbit is a, you know, an epic fantasy story about a young, I mean, not a young, really. He's like a middle-aged uh kind of halfling man who lives out in the countryside and uh, dwarves come to his house and his friend Gandalf the wizard wraps him into an epic journey that he doesn't really want to go on to recover the dragon's uh, treasure named Smaug. And uh, that's The Hobbit. Check it out. It's kind of <laughs> hard to summarize The Hobbit in one minute, but... Uh... <laughs> I kind of did more shaming in that elevator pitch than in any of the other yeah. ones. Uh, you're an idiot if you've never read The Hobbit, but uh, anyway. My, my summary would be like, you you know, you know, The Hobbit. The Hobbit, you yeah. Know what I'm talking about. You know, yeah, everyone knows that. Uh, just open the front cover and there's the map. The map is basically, <laughs> you know. That for me, that was like half the wonder of reading it for the first time was referring to that map. Basically, every little thing that they did the first time I read the book, it was like, oh, which, where are they on the map now? Super nerdy. <laughs> uh, so my, my next one is uh, Middlesex. Middlesex. OK, go. So this is a book by Jeffrey uh, Eugenides. I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name, but um, he also wrote The Virgin Suicides. Uh, so this is a really popular book i mean it won the pulitzer prize it's it's really really good um i wrote about it for some class in college uh, i remember liking it a lot and it's a really sprawling kind of epic of a story but it's about like it's about someone kind of finding their identity and it's uh, a lot about kind of confusion with identity and and um but it kind of it could it like feels like it could just be about that but but Along with that, it's this sprawling kind of story that covers uh, a whole bunch of different points in time, like uh, race riots in the 60s. And uh, like a, it's kind of like personal identity and also family identity. And um, it's uh, I would call it like an American epic, I guess. Is it there, very good? There it is. 
Middle Sex is that type of book where I feel like I've I've seen it. I I knew nothing about that book you, first of all. So good elevator pitch. You've definitely seen it. I know. All it's you do is you see it. You see it in the bookstore. It's that one that has a really bold typeface on the front, and isn't it like a cloud background? Like there's like clouds uh, or like it has like uh, a the dark. One, the one color. I have, yeah, it's black and white. The one I have yeah. is like uh, smoke and water. Right. And yeah. Like the smoke on top of the that. smoke. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. Sucks. Anyway, uh, moving right along, my uh, my next one is Autograph Man. Okay, so Autograph Man is a novel by uh, um, by Zadie Smith, who uh, wrote you know books like White Teeth. I think Autograph Man is actually right after White Teeth, so it might be like her second or third novel. Really cool book, again, concerning people in London, but also I think that they go back and forth between London and New York. Uh, Autograph Man is a, it's a title taken literally from the characters in the novel. The main character is somebody who, he's one of those people who collects authentic autographs, uh, like of, you know, old film stars um, on eBay and stuff like that. But really it's just about the talented writing of Zadie Smith and the interpersonal relationships between this autograph collector and then he eventually tracks down um kind of like a washed up movie star from the 30s that he absolutely worships but no one else really appreciates in new york city and it's kind of just about obsession and but also you know just meeting your heroes there you go nice all right and hopefully you're inspired to read autograph man (laughs) (laughs) all right happy slapped by a jellyfish Whoa. So this is a book by Carl Pilkington, uh, one of my most favorite people in the world. Um, He was the guy who was brought into the light by uh, Carl Pilkington, or sorry, Carl Pilkington, uh, who's on the Ricky Gervais show, uh, the old podcast back in the, you know, early, mid 2000s. Um, But then he started doing his own thing. He started writing books and uh, his books are very simple, but they're awesome. And it's just him talking about his travels and it's like his journal entries and stuff. And uh, he draws little cartoons and stuff. And if you don't know him, he, he's got a, you know, a singular brain. The, the way he thinks, um, it's just baffling. But then you think about it for a little bit and some some things make sense. Some things don't. Uh, Ricky says on the cover, if you think he's a genius, you're an idiot. And that definitely makes me an idiot. Uh, I think he's a genius in his own way because he can think about something um in a way that no one else would (laughs) (laughs) cool yeah that's i didn't know pilkington wrote books i know you're a huge fan of his i have all of them there's like five or six of them nice he really took that idiocy and uh, went with it well he wrote companion books for an idiot abroad and for uh for like each each season that he did he wrote a book to go along with it a pretty busy guy for somebody who's supposedly stupid yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's some, there's something else going on there. Okay, uh basically uh there's only one more to go, right? You did all your books. Yeah. And so I'm going to do my last book and uh, I'll start it right now. So I am doing a book called Winter. Okay, uh I'm doing a book called Winter by Ali Smith. I'm cheating because this is my final elevator pitch book, but it's also the book that I'm doing this week on the podcast, so I don't have to explain it in 60 seconds. I can take as much time as I want. 
this so, song gonna uh, go on for a half hour. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm just gonna play this song for a half an hour. No, uh, to try <laughs> to try to summarize it really quickly in 30 seconds before I get into it. Um, Ali Smith is, I think, one of the first repeat authors that I've done on the podcast, which is surprising to me because I would think that I would, you know, do like a, you know, there are other authors that I'm more obsessed with. But, uh, you know, as I've been reading along, I did Autumn by Ali Smith early in the podcast. Now I'm going to do Winter by Ali Smith. Um, a really good book, and I'm gonna obviously going to get into it for a little bit longer, but it's a book about... Uh, you know, parenthood, uh, deceiving your parents, but also trying, like, deceiving yourself. And uh, we'll get into it right now. Don't leave the elevator because uh, I can take as much time as I want. I guess I cheated there a little bit at the end <laughs> for, my, for my book reveal. We're moving to the uh, short drive pitch now. Yeah, it's the short drive. Yes, 20 yes. minutes. <laughs> yeah, we're stuck in a car together. and I uh, can, Uber, um, the Uber yeah, pitch, yeah. Uber, yeah. I'm, uh, I, I'm pitching my Uber driver to read Winter. Um, so, yeah, uh, like I mentioned in my elevator pitch, um, Ali Smith is one of... Uh, have you done a repeat author yet, Mark? I don't think you've Not done yet. an author twice. No. So yeah, like I said, like this is my fir uh, fir like a first repeat author on the podcast, which I would never predict. Oh, I'm gonna be pitching Ali Smith twice on the podcast. Um, not that I don't want to give her my double endorsement because she's just such an excellent writer, but um, it's kind of surprising to me that she would be the first one. But I guess that's that's life and time for you as she would say in this book which is a which is a phrase that comes up between the family members a few times um well the thing this, the thing that i think about like uh that's a that's a good you know if you can cover two books by someone that means that they were unique enough from each other you know because some authors maybe might be a little similar of like a story and you that's why you wouldn't do it as a repeat yeah, I mean, maybe I might be breaking that rule a little bit because some, in some ways these books these books are connected um, in theme, but also just in. Um, I mean, I guess they're they're a little bit different. If if you, I, I don't really I don't remember the episode number that I did for Ali Smith's book Autumn, but basically she's doing um, she's doing one of those uh, kind of classic things as an author where she's writing a seasonal cycle. So she comes out with Autumn, which, uh, you know, a brief, first of all, a brief summary of Allie Smith. She was born in 1962. She's age 56. She's Scottish. Um, and she's really huge in the UK at the moment. And uh, if, you know, a few episodes ago, I covered um, Normal People by Sally Rooney. A lot of people call her the first post, like the, uh, the first millennial novelist. I, I don't know if she's if time will tell that she's going to garner that, um, keep that criticism. But I think Ali Smith will hold on to the first, what people call her is the first post-Brexit novelist. So she has things in her novels that she's been dumping into her, um, into her seasonal cycle that are just brilliant observations about the whole Brexit uh, political situation and interpersonal situation that's been happening in the UK. She published Autumn in 2016, which was a book that I covered on the podcast previously. Winter came out in 2017. Spring is coming out in 2019 and summer will is to be announced. So she's doing the sort of seasonal cycle thing, um, just writing four books for each, one for each season. Um, 
Like I said, I don't really, it's surprising that winter is not so different from autumn. There's some interesting stuff. I think I remember telling you, Mark, that when autumn started, I was like completely turned off when it first started because it starts um, inside of like something that I know you love, which is like a dream logic sequence of an old man like dreaming about his past. And... Mm -hmm. For Ali Smith's particular particular brand of writing, which she um, she doesn't stick strictly to okay, this plot is moving forward and this is what I'm going to write about. You know, like the story moving forward, it kind of like jumps around in time and jumps around in memory. So when she first started that in autumn, you know, the dreams of basically a not hundred percent lucid old man, I was like a little bit kind of like, oh, I don't know if this is going to be my thing. I don't know if I'm going to read this, but eventually got sucked in by the characters and some of the themes that she presents. Um, and this book starts much the same way. So you actually are inside of the mind of an old woman who is seeing the, like a vision that um, a like kind of the equivalent of like a doll's head, but basically like a severed child's head is like following her around her house and doing like funny things like rolling around on the table and like, you know, floating in and out of the window and stuff like that. And uh, it feels weird at first, like I had to kind of like get into it, but then I also kind of just reminded myself like, hey, this is how like the other book started, but then you ended up loving it. So kind of just like go forward. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's a very sort of it has somewhat similar structure in the sense that Autumn was a book about, oh, like there's this to do a quick summary of Autumn. It was like an older man, like a guy who's like 110. He's slowly dying and a woman comes home from her university job to kind of deal with the fact that this family friend is passing away. But also she's dealing with like her psychotic mother who seems like she might have a um a pro-brexit or there you would call them a lever um somebody who believes that they that the that the uk should leave the european union so she kind of has to deal with the interpersonal relationships of you know having a force like that in your family which is obvious like like since the nation is so split in the united kingdom it's a it's a pretty common like experience for a lot of people and this book doesn't really differ from that too much like it's an older woman who's kind of losing it um she i wouldn't say that she's like clearly dying but she's clearly like going through her end of life cycle and what happens is it's like it's kind of like a cool little plot that her son Arthur is coming back just for Christmas so it's winter so basically the the chunk of the novel the time that happens in real time that isn't reminiscing and stuff like that is uh Christmas day into well it's kind of like Christmas Eve into Christmas day and then what they call in the UK Boxing Day which is the day after Christmas yep um, so he comes home and the interesting thing about Arthur is that he's sort of a bullshitter. Um, he writes a blog online called art and nature and he's like, oh yeah, I'm trying to like, I try like make observations about nature and like, I'm so cool. And like, I'm a writer or whatever. Um, he's going through a period of, uh, in his life where he's breaking up with his girlfriend, Charlotte and Charlotte has taken over his Twitter account. He's she's locked him out of his own Twitter account and he starts <laughs> and she starts tweeting things that are like, that make him look like unprofessional as a nature writer, even though not many people follow his blog to begin with. She sort of, you know, is 
go, they're going through a breakup and she's treating him like shit. And um, so since he's going home for Christmas, he can't face the fact that his mother knows that he's been living with this woman, Charlotte. He can't really face the fact that they are split up. So basically one of the main plot points of the novel is he hires a young woman um, to be the Charlotte stand-in. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he meets a, like a young woman at a bus stop who's sort of like a drifter. You know, she has like piercings in her face and she's, you know, somebody who's a little bit like down and out. And he basically says, hey, I'm going to pay you a thousand pounds to come home with me for Christmas and pretend to be my girlfriend. <laughs> um so that's like a main like chunk of the novel i found that really interesting um but you know obviously i mean it might not be a surprise that as we go forward we learn that the fake charlotte's real name is lux and that she's actually a really wonderful human being who has a lot of redeeming qualities but she you also it gets dropped in there you know um so basically they go home and uh his mom is sort of on the down and out, like when they first kind of this woman that you've kind of gotten acclimated to the fact that she sees things, she sees this like weird baby head, like rolling around and stuff like that. Uh, you get acclimated to her. And then obviously when people who are a little bit more sane enter into her world in her home, uh, she's like a bit on the, on the outs, she's like, like they go home and she's like wrapped in a million sweaters. Like the heat isn't on and she's like kind of losing her mind. Yeah, it's so, not quirky. It's gets really, it, it gets real all of a sudden. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's not quirky. It's like holy shit. She's like in trouble. And uh, to sort of bring in the cavalry, Arthur then phones his estranged aunt named uh, Iris, and Iris is uh, somebody who, through so like for her entire life, she was the wild child who was attending political protests. Um, and his mom, Sophia, the one who's kind of losing her shit, she was more of like the pragmatic businesswoman who was successful throughout her life because of kind of her relative financial conservatism. So Aunt Iris comes back to save the day, but obviously she's, you know, she's like the roll your eyes type liberal where it's like you can't um, like have but a obviously his aunt is also the, like, very idealized like, about um, or, like, Brexit. Uh, and everything that's happening in the in the uh, in the country at the moment. So some of that gets dropped in. There's this giant interpersonal story. Um, the only thing, the only like real pitch that I can give for Ali Smith is, you know, I can tell you the way I can summarize the way that all these things kind of go down in the book. But really, I just want to read some passages because. Um, you know, I, I think that people, this will probably happen with other people in the UK because they're both such hot authors in the UK right now. But it, I think maybe, you know, comparing Ali Smith to Sally Rooney might be a bit of an insult because as I go forward, I realize that Sally Rooney is the, the book called Normal People that I covered on the podcast before. She's a very addicting writer. She's a very hot writer right now that everybody, you know, can get on the on the London tube and be reading the book. And it's very addicting and you read it very quickly. But I would say that Ali Smith probably has more staying power just because of how much she's very mature. She's much more mature. Um, and she, you know, her writing is very, very hard hitting but also a little bit more ethereal like she has a she has a plot weaved in here but she also can, like allows herself to kind of take it anywhere that she wants and she's very good at it including into the political realm i think a lot of people in the uk you know 
it's the country is divided clearly uh the the u.s country is also divided clearly and um you know some people in the uk might read this book and be like oh it's like liberal bullshit um because she does do chapter breaks where she just kind of like in the middle of this kind of very epically emotional plot, she'll do chapter breaks where she just describes something that happened. Like there's a chapter break once where it describes uh, something that I looked up like it is real and everything. But the um, there was like a parliament session sometime in like 2017 or 2018 or something. I forget the date where one of the parliament members barked at a woman member of parliament like a dog. Like in the in the middle of the proceedings, and he was like, "What? I'm just joking around. Like it's just a joke." And it's like, "No, it's not. Like you're a fucking dick. You know, like like everything is falling apart, and you're like being an asshole, like barking at like a female. You know, like woof woof, like you're like an asshole." Um, so she does. She drops stuff in like that about the UK Parliament. She drops stuff in about like how moronic Trump is, and like how scary it is, and and all this crazy stuff. So um, I also want to read a few passages just about how kind of because she's really good at you know as somebody who is you know I wouldn't I wouldn't say she's old. She's not like an older author. She's only fifty six, but um, you know she's also someone who is not avoiding the topic of the internet. I've talked before about how Zadie Smith is good at, at um, weaving in you know people on their smartphones and stuff. Uh, Ali Smith is no different. She has a few hilarious passages in here where the aunt Irene uh, Iris texts Arthur and it's like all like misspelled bullshit and it's really funny. Um. But I just want to read some of these things are going to be really quick because I think some of the power of her writing is that she's one of those people who can who drops in a sentence that's like really great. Um, but then some of it will be a little bit longer. So uh, I think something that I wrote like a, a, a sentence that I encountered very early on in the novel that I think kind of goes with the theme of the entire book is, um, you know, the book is called Winter. There's one sentence in here, page 66, that says, that's what winter is, an exercise in remembering how to still yourself, then how to pl come pliantly back to life again. So um, I think that that is in some ways a summary of the Sophia character, the old woman who's losing her mind. It's sort of like she had to come to terms with stilling herself in the winter of life and there is some redeeming qualities about the events that happen in this book that get her um a little bit more um more kind of up to date oh another thing that uh, another reference in that within the pages of this book that i thought you would find interesting mark is um this has nothing really to do with the book. It has more to do with like a regional feel for the United Kingdom. But uh, there's one scene in the book where uh, the old woman is in her kitchen listening to something called the Archers. Have you ever heard of something called the Archers, Mark? The art, like, is that a music or like a radio show? A, a radio show. Have you heard of a radio the show Archers. called Archers? No, no. What is that? So it's really fast. This is something that I found was like really fascinating. And actually, I'm just going to click into Wikipedia just so I can get my facts right. But um, <laughs> when I was living in the UK, sometimes like random people would it would like kind of like come up in life like this random thing called the archers. And I was like, what the hell are you talking about? And it's kind of it's like something that, you know, your mom or even your grandma would probably listen to, like not something that, you know, the young kids are downloading on Spotify or anything like that. But there is a BBC Radio 4 um, spoken word, like, 
drama basically it's 12 minutes some it used to be 15 minutes and it's been running all the time since 1951 and it has aired over 18,900 episodes <laughs> and it's the world's longest running drama so like there's this unending cast of people who have been in the archers throughout british you know radio history and i mean just think about that 18,000 almost 19,000 episodes <laughs> so That's like, like yeah it is a so it's radio a soap drama. opera cool. it's a soap radio drama but it's also one of those things that it's like almost it's nearly impossible to be a completionist like when a colleague of mine first told me about it i was like what that sounds so sick you know like obviously my nature for experiencing the epic i was like what if i what if i listen to the whole thing and it's like you can't really even listen to the whole thing it's been going on <laughs> for so long that like even if you try to look up you can probably find the earliest broadcasts on youtube as sort of like a novelty thing but i don't don't think that there's anywhere where there's a collection of every single part of it um even for purchase or anything like that like it's so freaking long and it's been going on for centuries that i think it's kind of one of those things that you just kind of turn on on sunday and it's like oh what's happening on the archers this is like hilarious um yeah so that was EastEnders. one. Yeah, that was one thing that I thought I was like, I was happy to see in the book. Um, here's another quote. There was something that I really loved um, about Google, and I have to find the quote in my book here. Also, it will go towards the credit of Ali Smith. That um, our readers know. I mean, our listeners know that I'm not a huge fan of dealing with hardcovers and i have this book in hardcover because it's so new i didn't at the time that i bought it i don't really think it had um a paperback edition okay so this was a like a quick little paragraph that i really loved her talking about google because obviously how does google come up in our lives people basically just say oh like i'm gonna google that to like figure out you know any question what, yeah any question yeah <laughs> um Google, his mother says, the new found the new newfound land. Not so long ago, it was only the mentally deranged, the unworldly pedants, the imperialists, and the naivest of schoolchildren who believed that encyclopedia could give you any equivalence for the actual world or any real understanding of it. And door-to-door -door salesmen sold them, and they were never to be trusted. And even the authorized encyclopedia, even them, we never mistook for for or accepted as any real knowledge of the of the world. But now the world trusts search engines without a thought the canniest door-to-door -door salesman ever invented never mind foot in the door already right in the heart of the home so <laughs> that's pretty interesting to me like she's basically saying like you know encyclopedias and like quote-unquote facts used to be something that arrived at your doorstep from like this like shitty people who you didn't want in your house trying to sell you an unlicensed encyclopedia <laughs> and even the licensed encyclopedias you would just look up one thing and be like yeah but that's like not the whole story but now at this point obviously the only thing that we do is look it up conclude that it's that it's real and move on about our day. Um, so, you know, I thought that that was sort of like an interesting perspective on, and also that that's kind of something that I think, you know, might come from a more conservative voice, um, you know, within the liberal framework. Um, but obviously Ali Smith is, is a, a liberal person. Here's the longest chunk that I want to read from the book. Um, 
which I think is just a, such a good example of the power of her writing, but also um, a good example of how she can take the story of the book with characters that you care about and also weave in the Brexit debate, which is obviously something happening over every Christmas dinner, every Boxing Day shopping spree um, is the background context of the giant Brexit debacle. So um, here we go. His mother starts out saying, They're economic migrants, his mother says. They want better lives. The ghost of old Enoch, Iris says in a ghost voice, rivers of blood. What's wrong with people wanting better lives, Mrs. Cleves, Lux says. You mustn't be naive, Charlotte. They're coming here because they want our lives, his mother says. But I know, but I bet I know what you voted, Iris says in the so-called vote. My sister, the so-called intelligent one. I was the wild one, so-called. But what will the world do, though, Mrs. Cleves, Lux says, if we can't solve the problem of the millions and millions of people with no home to go to or whose homes aren't good enough, except by saying go away and building bigger fences and walls? It isn't a good enough answer. That one group of people can be in charge of the destinies of another group of people and choose whether to exclude them or include them. Human beings have to be more ingenious than this and more generous. We've got to come up with a better answer. But his mother is gripping the arms of her chair with fury. The so-called vote, his mother says, was a vote to free our country from inheriting the troubles of other countries, as well as from having to have laws that weren't made here for people like us by people like us. Depends whether you think there's a them and an us, Iris says, or just an us, given that DNAs let us know we're all pretty much family. Oh, there is almost definitely a them, his mother says, in everything, and family is no exception. <laughs> So it's like that is a fucking epic conclusion of a sentence where, she, you know, when she says family is no exception because it's it's conservative versus liberal. It's Iris versus Sophia. It, uh, the, the third person in there, Lux, also known as Charlotte, is the fake Charlotte who, you know, they still call Charlotte because they're idiots. Um <laughs> And and you obviously you slowly come to learn that Lux herself is um, is not so much an immigrant as she is one of the more complicated cases, you know, in the Brexit debacle is that, you know, there's a lot of people in their country that is um, not necessarily, you know, her story isn't, oh, I'm like a recent migrant to the UK. It's like I was someone who was born here. I'm like an EU citizen that my parents like came to the UK and now I might just get voted out of the country because of how complicated it is. Um, and, you know, it, she she has some really, you know, interesting parts. It's like you, you, you know, she's obviously a person who's a bit of a rebel. She has like all these piercings in her face and stuff like that that she takes out to be to try to pretend to be Arthur's girlfriend. Um, but, you know, you learn throughout the novel that it's not just, oh, like she's some, you know, crust punk who doesn't know how to take care of herself. It's also like, yeah, I have this warehouse job because I can't really have permanent work because everyone's just like, oh, we don't know if you're going to be allowed to stay here once all this crazy voting shit is over. So, you know, there's a lot of people who are stuck in like sort of a limbo in the UK because they don't know if they're going to get kicked out or not. Um, yeah. which was, that was something that was even how, when I worked for a big giant corporate company in the UK, they had, you know, they had people, uh, you know, counseling other like EU people like, no, you're not going to get kicked out of the country. We're going to like figure something out. And it's like, well, you can't really guarantee that there's like a lot of crazy shit happening. <laughs> um, 
So uh, I will leave this quote. Um, I've, I've gone a little bit long. I didn't expect to talk about uh, Ali Smith's Winter this for so long, but it is an excellent book. Obviously, I recommend it. My elevator pitch has gone from one minute to 30 minutes. And um, Uber pitch. Uber pitch. Um, and, I, and I'll leave you with this quote, which is less political and more um, you know, esoteric, but still a great example of Ali Smith. This is Arthur. He thinks about how whatever being alive is, with all its past and presence and futures, it is most itself in the moments when you surface from a depth of numbness or forgetfulness that you didn't even know you were at, and break the surface, and when you do, it's akin to what? Uh, to a salmon leaping God knows where, home against the f- home against the flow, not knowing what home is, not knowing anything except there's no other thing to do, or to a bird or a bear breaking the surface of winter water with a fish so big in its beak or its mouth that it can't believe its luck. The moment before that fish waggles itself loose, falls away, hits the surface of the water again, and disappears back down into it. So that's life according to Ali Smith. And my one-star review to close out my review of Winter by Ali Smith, I have uh, I have an anonymous Amazon customer that says one star, worst book ever except for the one that preceded it. Worst book I've ever read except for the one that preceded it. Hard to get into, made no sense or at least nothing I wanted to delve into. I read for relaxation, I read for relaxation and enjoyment, and this was neither. I gave it a one star because I couldn't go any lower. Trust me, spend your hard earned money on something else. My copies just went into the thrift shop boxes. (laughs) (laughs) So go find that anonymous Amazon customers uh, edition of winter and in the thrift shops and uh, completely disregard how it was so much worse than autumn because I think they're good companion pieces to each other. And uh, Ali Smith has a lot of interesting things to say. Yeah, if, if they really hated it, they would have destroyed it, not oh, put right. it back into circulation. I think I was, yeah, maybe. I think I can say, actually, that uh, I have a pretty deep, dark sense of humor, but the one thing that does disturb me is, uh, that does offend me, is when people destroy and or burn books. I think that this is, like, sort of unacceptable. That's where you draw the line, yeah. Yeah, that's where I draw the line. Don't destroy any books, <laughs> people. Nice. All right. So... There you go. Hopefully you'll be inspired to read Allie Smith someday. <laughs> All right. Ready? Ready. I'm ready. Yes. I'm ready. <laughs> so today uh, for my book report, you know, I'm, I'm going to be dealing with a topic that is, you know, brought up all the time. It's a, it's a big genre. It's usually in like a half, half serious, half joking kind of way, but it's always a little difficult to you know, laugh at if people try and make it in a, in a, you know, to talk about it in jest because it's, it always, it seems so possible and so impossible at the same time. It's something that could become a reality tomorrow or never, uh, but it always, you know, remains a, a threat. And, um, so yeah, it represents a huge chunk of the speculative fiction and sci-fi genres. And that was, you know, kind of a shitty little riddle, but do you have any guess at what I'm talking about? There's so many things you could be talking about. I'm thinking either nuclear warfare or zombie apocalypse or um, I don't know, like like into the future, everyone is dead or something like that. Yeah, Glo- well, you global got warming. It. <laughs> <laughs> it is the apocalypse, you know, post-apocalyptic okay. fiction. Um, so, like, what is your favorite post-apocalyptic thing? Like, not necessarily a book, you know, movies, TV shows, video games, anything. Um, because it's a huge genre. 
Yeah, I'm going to have to say uh, it's something that I don't think many listeners will know of, um, but it's I know it's one of your favorite movies. What's that Luc Besson film that's post-apocalyptic? Oh, uh, uh, Le Dernier Combat. Yeah, like Le Dernier Combat. The Last Battle. The yeah, last The battle. Last Battle. Yeah, I think that's probably one of my favorite post-apocalyptic. Um, that's a great movie. Mainly for the opening shot. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's like one of the best opening shots of all time. Don't um, we, we will not be giving that away. Just just don't, watch it. Yeah, don't <laughs> just watch *Le Dernier Combat* by Luc Besson. Um, yeah, uh, I like Mad I Max. Yeah, ma- yeah, maybe Mad Fury Road is definitely you know like art with a capital A. It's definitely a great great um, film. Um, I legend. Mm, not really not the film at least maybe the maybe the, the book is fantastic book. i don't know if you yeah. read that but it did it that's a confusing one because it has so many different iterations was it originally a novel first and then a comic book yes yeah and it's richard movie? matheson okay. richard matheson i think it's 1954 maybe hmm. okay that's a great book but yeah i would say that's what comes to mind is the le dernier combat would be my favorite post-apocalyptic thing Nice. Is Planet of the Apes, would you count that as post-apocalypse? You know what? Yeah. Now, now, like, I think we can go down a rabbit hole with this one because I actually might put Planet of the Apes above Le Dernier Combat now that I think of it. Uh, (laughs) I claim my right. Like I said, I feel like someone who just woke up early. Um, Yeah. I mean, Planet of the Apes is certainly also, you know, such a great artwork. So, um, yeah. Yes. But that totally counts as post-apocalyptic Planet of the Apes. Come on. Okay. Nice. Yeah, so anyway, you know, there's a ton of them. They all have their own spin on things, you know, how the world uh, came to be, how the world crumbled, what it's like to be a survivor of this, you know, what what there is left to fight for or, you know, to rebuild. Um, I mean, I think it's safe to say the creation of this genre is really sparked by World War II and, like, uh, nuclear, the introduction of nuclear warfare. Yeah. And then, you know, it exploded through the Cold War when the threat, of nuclear war was, you know, right there, uh, constantly there. Um, and I don't, I, I have not researched this, but I would bet that, you know, earlier versions or visions of the apocalypse were more about religion or disease and that sort of thing. Um, or like, you know, supernatural threats instead of real things. Once we like knew about, uh, radiation and all that. Right. I mean, I would say it's had a bit of a resurgence, though, too. I mean, it probably comes in waves, like a lot of it coming out after World War Two, and then a lot of it coming, you know, now there's all like zombies and shit. Yeah, yeah. So the book, the book I brought today, uh, it's one of those, you know, but it's widely considered one of the best of the genre. And it's pretty well regarded in, in sci-fi and even like 20th century literature as a whole. Um, and it's definitely a crazy, unique take on things and it's it's from 1959 so it wasn't really borrowing from much else at the time um like i said uh i am legend was like 54 i think there's that book um on the beach by neville shoot that's like 1958 maybe this was 1959 but it's from a bunch of short stories it's it's from three novellas like um from the mid 50s so i i wouldn't say it's you know stolen from anything so I'm talking about A Canticle for Leibowitz by American author Walter M. Miller Jr. So right off the bat, you know, the book sets itself apart from the rest of the genre with that title. Like it it, it doesn't sound like some bleak, you know, post-apocalyptic shit. Uh, these sort of books uh, were conditioned to, 
you know, call them like the decimation or end of days or shit like that. Like blood war, <laughs> cataclysm of death. Blood war. <laughs> a, a canticle, you know, is just like a religious song. And uh, Leibowitz is, you know, the last name of someone you probably went to high school with. Uh, and this book is just, you know, kind of different right off the bat. Uh, so first, let me start with a little about the author, uh, Walter M. Miller Jr. He was born in Florida. After college, he worked as an engineer, served in World War II as a tail gunner, did some bombing missions over Italy. And, uh, you know, after the war, um, he started to focus on writing. He also, you know, had a kind of severe PTSD, but he published a bunch of short science fiction stories. And you know those magazines that were like huge back then called like Amazing Tales or, you know, science stories from other worlds with like the pulp style covers. Yeah. Um, when I was a teenager, I kind of wish that they had still existed. I mean, I guess that they kind of technically do still exist, but I kind of I like you know, I wish that they were more popular because I had been looking them up and, and uh, reading about all these sci-fi periodicals that used to be popular, but they had kind of fallen out of uh, out of vogue. Yeah, he contributed to a lot of those uh, back then in, in the 50s. Um, and he actually, yeah, like I said, he assembled this book, A Canticle for Leibowitz, from three novellas that he had published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. Uh, so this was actually his only novel until the sequel was published shortly after its death in 1996. Uh, so this looks like 300-something pages, uh, 350. And I guess he had been working on this big follow-up, um, and it was just like 600-page manuscript or something. And, you know, he wrote it into his will that, that it would be published after afterwards. That one's called uh, St. Leibowitz and the Wild Horsewoman. Anyways... So this book is separated into three parts. The first part is called Let There Be Man. It takes place in Utah, like hundreds of years after something called uh, the Flame Deluge happened, which is, you know, the, the apocalypse. It's wiped out most of the world and set it back to like a pre-technological state. And so the main character here isn't some like, you know, gritty, whatever, Mad Max style character. It's, it's a monk. He's called Brother Francis, and he's uh, is at one of the some monastery in the desert. And one day, he just he happens upon a strange old traveler, who in like a very weird but calculated way sets him up to discover um, a buried uh, fallout shelter in the desert from from a much earlier time. It's kind of like the hatch on Lost. You're like, what what the fuck is this? Uh, so this this shelter it has. He, 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 you know, explores it. He, he finds all these old technical blueprints and documents left behind by a, uh, a Jewish engineer named Leibowitz, like an electrical engineer, uh, which they have, you know, no understanding of, like what these things, drawings and stuff mean. Uh, quick, you know, quick uh, technical side note is some of the electrical yeah. engineer references uh, accurate. You yourself are an electrical engineer. So did you have to call bullshit on a few things or was he doing uh, research? No, I mean, you, they, you don't you don't see the it's uh, not important. I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, yeah. you kind of get into it a little bit. And it was funny, like um, there's a type of motor like or like a setup for a motor called a squirrel cage. 
Mm-hmm. And so like they read that and and then he's like, he's like, this is clearly like could not house a squirrel. Like <laughs> uh, They're like, this doesn't make any sense. So that, that was pretty funny. There's some jokes turn in there. Um, but yeah, so they have all these blueprints. They don't understand them uh, because, you know, that the like part of the aftermath of this specific apocalypse was that people kind of renounced scientific knowledge because it had they've used it as like the root cause of the mess in the first place. Mm-hmm. You know, like the the invention of nuclear warfare and all that stuff. So let me read a quick section introducing this sort of concept and how this is a specific, you know, it's a unique take on the apocalypse. All right. It was said that God, in order to test mankind, which had become swelled with pride as in the time of Noah, had commanded the wise men of that age, among them the blessed Leibowitz, to devise great engines of war such as had never before been upon the earth weapons of such might that they contained the very fires of hell and that God had suffered these magi to place the weapons in the hand of princes in the hands of princes and to say to each prince only because the enemies have such a thing have we devised this for thee in order that that they may know that thou hast it also and fear to strike see to it my lord that thou fearest them as much as they shall now fear thee that none may unleash this dread thing which we have wrought but the princes putting the words of their wise men to naught, thought each to himself, If I but strike quickly enough and in secret, I shall destroy those others in their sleep, and there will be none to fight back. The earth shall be mine. Such was the folly of princes, and there followed the flame deluge. Within weeks, some said days, it was ended, after the first unleashing of the hellfire. Cities had become puddles of glass, surrounded by vast acreages of broken stone. While nations had vanished from the earth, the lands littered with bodies, both men and cattle, and all manner of beasts, together with the birds of the air and all things that flew, all things that swam in the rivers, crept in the grass, or burrowed in holes, having sickened and perished, they covered the land. And yet where the demons of the fallout covered the countryside, the bodies for a time would not decay, except in contact with fertile earth. The great clouds of wrath engulfed the forests and the fields, withering trees and causing the crops to die. There were deserts where once life was. And in those places of the earth where men still lived, all were sickened by the poisoned air, so that while some escaped death, none was left untouched, and many died even in those lands where the weapons had not struck because of the poisoned air. In all parts of the world men fled from one place to other places, and there was a confusion of tongues. Much wrath was kindled against the princes and the servants of the princes, and against the magi who had devised the weapons. Years passed, and yet the earth was not cleansed, so it was clearly recorded in the memorabilia. From the confusion of tongues, the intermingling of the remnants of many nations, from fear, the hate was born. And the hate said, Let us stone and disembowel and burn the ones who did this thing. Let us make a holocaust of those who wrought this crime, together with their hirelings and their wise men, burning. Let them perish, and all their works, their names, and even their memories. Let us destroy them all and teach our children that the world is new, that they may know nothing of the deeds that went before. Let us make a great simplification, and then the world shall begin again. Uh, I'm going to jump back into it, but yeah, they like, you know, you know, how there's always like science fiction as a word like that for like mm-hmm. their version of like the enlightenment or like some kind of stage of humanity. Right, and this yeah, is yeah. the simplification. The simplification. <laughs> yeah. But they also call it something else like the great fire or something like that. The flame deluge. The flame deluge. Yeah. I like it's the comparison. Different. I like the comparison early on in your quote of like 
Because isn't that the whole thing that uh, God reset the earth during the flood of Noah to like, yeah, like Noah. you know, and it's like, yeah, like basically like people were just as arrogant again. So like a giant like apocalyptic event happened, which I don't think I've ever heard those two things like kind of like connected, like the legend of of the flood to also be yeah. post-apocalyptic kind of. Yeah, no, this book has this this book has a ton of like religious ties and things like that because it's you know from the perspective or like from the setting of like a monastery and that sort of thing so mm-hmm. um let me jump let me read the rest of this page here so it was that after the deluge the fallout the plagues the madness the confusion of tongues the rage there began the bloodletting of the simplification when remnants of mankind had torn other remnants limb from limb killing rulers, scientists, scientists, leaders, technicians, teachers, and whatever persons the leaders of the maddened mob said deserved death for having helped to make the earth what it had become. Nothing had been so hateful in the sight of these mobs as the man of learning, at first because they had served the princes, but then later because they refused to join the bloodletting and tried to oppose the mobs, calling the crowds bloodthirsty simpletons. Joyfully, the mobs accepted the name, took up the cry, Simpletons, yes, yes, I'm a simpleton. Are you a simpleton? We'll build a town and we'll name it Simple Town. Because by then, all the smart bastards that caused all this, they'll be dead. Simpletons, let's go. This ought to show them. Anybody here not a simpleton? Get the bastard if there is. (laughs) The uh, cadence I just put on that is incorrect. (laughs) Get the the bastard. Uh, to escape the fury of the simpleton pack, such learned people as still survived fled to any sanctuary that offered itself. When Holy Church received them, she vested them in monks' robes and tried to hide them in such monasteries and convents as had survived and could be reoccupied. For the religious were less despised by the mob except when they openly defied it and accepted martyrdom. Sometimes such sanctuaries were effective, but more often it was not. Monasteries were invaded. Records and sacred books were burned. There you go, talking about books again. Book burning. Refugees were seized and summarily hanged or burned. The simplification had ceased to have plan or purpose soon after it began and became an insane frenzy of mass murder and destruction such as can occur only when the last traces of social order are gone. The madness was transmitted to the children, taught as they were, not merely to forget, but to hate, and surges of mob fury recurred sporadically even even through the fourth generation after the deluge. By then, the fury was directed not against the learned, for there were none, but against the merely literate. Hmm. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, this guy was a, a very talented author, and uh, it's kind of surprising that he only wrote one novel. But, he, yeah, a lot of short stories to, to go through. Mm-hmm. So, uh, like, from this, from what I just read, like, they, they find... In the, in the monastery, they find these scraps of knowledge left behind by Leibowitz, uh, which are like, you know, blueprints to a motor and like even like a grocery list. So they have no understanding of like what he's talking about. Uh, but they, you know, treat them as as, you know, uh, religious kind of scrolls and they, they canonize Leibowitz as like a saint. And then their goal becomes like preserving the knowledge until it can be better understood and mm-hmm. utilized. Um, so that's the first part of the book. And then it's like, you know, boom, twist. The characters you cared about, they're gone. And then <laughs> zoom <laughs> into the future. Uh, so the first part was called Let There Be Man. And part two is called Let There Be Light. So here, like, um, you know, it's hundreds of years in the future. 
the scientific preservation that they did about this Leibowitz stuff is you know, paying off. Society uh, from the church outwards is rebuilding based on like the preserved documents. Um, however, you know they're not they're not back to zero yet. They're they're just still rebuilding. But even even in these stages, like the inevitability of war is still there because, um, you know, we can't just all get along. Uh, so that's like the middle part of the book. And then part three, uh, I don't feel too bad with spoilers because, you know, it's a 60 year old book. Uh, <laughs> part three, part three is called Let Thy Will Be Done. And it's another jump into the future, like another like 500, 600 years. Mm-hmm. And the characters change, but the religion remains. And, you know, here technology is actually eclipsed where it was before the flame deluge and now we're just fucking around in space and that's kind of like it's kind of like present day um and of course you know nuclear war is even more of a threat now it's like the flame deluge threat is back Mm -hmm. so the theme here of the book becomes like cyclical nature of time and the inevitable flaws of human of any you know human society and i've never come across a book that blends sci-fi and religion so well Mm -hmm. and um you know also the way that the aftermath of the apocalypse all that stuff is dealt with in this book is really interesting like the birth defects and closed off sex of people resulting from the reshuffling of society they're Mm -hmm. presented in a way that really like affects you yeah would you say would you say that like knowing the history of the publication like you said it was put together by three novellas is it like no like did you know that going in or did you research that after and it made sense? Or like, did, like, would you say that these three chunks, it's like, oh yeah, he obviously like, you know, put this together with like some masking tape or is it like weaved together well? Um, I, I would say it's weaved together well. And I think he had the intention of making it a continuing story. Mm, okay. You know, cool. they, they reference a lot, a lot of the same things. I mean, he may have gone and edited it to make it make more sense once he, you know, come combine them together i'm not Mm -hmm. sure but um it definitely works because it's um like the characters change but the monastery is like the main character pretty much right you cut this book is kind of reminding me of the book i previously covered on the podcast sparrow the one the one Uh, about the jesuits (laughs) the jesuits who like go to another planet like religion and sci-fi basically I was saving this for later, but uh, the author author of Sparrow, uh, Mary Doria Russell, she actually wrote the introduction for one of the newer editions of this book. Not the one I have, but I saw that and I was saving it. Um, But yeah, I can see the connection there. That's cool. Yeah. With, With Sparrow. Um, I'm sure she was, you know, inspired by this book. Probably. Definitely. Yeah. So... Uh, another like I'll touch on this as a last thing like most of the what set this book what sets this book apart like most of the apocalyptic fiction you know in anything like we're talking about movies TV shows books anything that I can think of of this you know kind of deals with just the struggle and the choices of the individual uh, but in this book I feel it's more true to what it would actually be like where you know the individual choices don't matter anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, it, and it's the knowledge and the concepts and the groups like, you know, religions or any other sort of group that would actually matter. Um, all in all, it's a, it's a pretty good sci-fi novel. It just it has such a huge scope. It's like a very ambitious work. 
Uh, I think some might, some people might find it boring because of that. Uh, I'll say, I don't know what this means, but I, I read most of this on like a, on a flight, four hour flight, <laughs> mm. uh, make of that what you will. Do you read on planes? I do. Yeah. It's usually the type of thing. It's usually the type of thing where, you know, you go into a flight being like, I can't wait to burn through like 80% of this book. And then you only <laughs> read, you only read like 10% or something like that. But yeah. when the, when the right conditions happen, uh, a, a plain book, like it can be really amazing. Um, but I think, it, I think it's sort of like a coin toss where it's like, it's either going to work or it's not, but when it does work, it's amazing. Yeah, this this one worked. Uh, it definitely caught my uh, caught my attention. Um, instead of you know watching the inflight movie or whatever that shit. <laughs> um, so yeah, I liked it a lot. Um, definitely can see where it inspired a lot of other science fiction, or you know how it kind of um, can stand as like a just a good you know literature. Just, just a good piece of literature from the 20th century, like not even just like sci-fi or whatever. Mm -hmm. Well, that's usually what happens when, so when sci-fi is so good that it becomes, you know, something else. It's kind of like, it's like when a horror movie become is like classy. They don't call it a horror movie anymore. They call it a thriller. <laughs> where it, yeah. like, that happens with sci-fi too, where it's like, like this is sci-fi, but trust me, it's actually good. Um, yeah, yeah. Actually. Um, which I don't know is if it's fair to say it that way, but it happens. <laughs> So now for a one-star review to close it out. And I really liked this review. This is from uh, this is from Ruth. I'd heard about this book for years. Finally decided now was the time. Turned out it wasn't. The beginning held my interest, although I did think the writing was a little self-conscious. That got me through about a third of the book. Then all of a sudden, things shifted, and so did my attitude. Yawn, skim, skip. That got me through <laughs> the second third. At that point, I got wise. And here's the part that's awesome. I'm 75 years old. <laughs> if, I'm going to, if I'm going to read even a portion of everything I want to read before I conk off, mm. I can't afford to waste my time on books I'm not enjoying. Back to the library it goes, unfinished. Boom. So we, we, have, not dealt, <laughs> we have not dealt with this reality yet. But no. when we're, you know, knocking on death's door, like... I can see that, you know, if a book isn't killing it, toss yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's definitely, it's a fear as some, as, as all um, prolific readers will testify, like it's definitely like a shitty fear to be like, well, what if I never finish, you know, like this or like what, it, like so many things that I haven't read or whatever. So <laughs> props to, what was the username? Did, was there a username? Ruth. Ruth, Ruth props to Ruth um you know if you don't have the time for it and you're 75 huck it but you know though tying it all together um I think we should all kind of read with that mindset because you know the apocalypse could happen too right no matter how old you are and life's too short in general too yeah so far my life's only been too short for Ayn Rand <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'm gonna read Franzen on my deathbed uh, right, exactly. So, <laughs> thanks for listening, everybody. This has been another episode of Shitty Book Reports. You can find us every Sunday on Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, Instagram, and Twitter at SBR the Podcast. You can also send us an email at sbrthepodcast at gmail.com. Uh, send us your comments, suggestions, corrections. 
um, you know, your TBR to be reading list or whatever, whatever you're feeling. Let's, uh, let's get some emails going. See you next time. See ya. Thank you.